Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you very much, Kate, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop, Caring for Your Bones When You Have Breast Cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, particularly breast cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. Now, we have on the call today over 834 participants. So you really a lot of you are on this call. It's a large call. And you come from all over the United States, from all different parts of the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Mexico, New Zealand, Thailand, the United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it's a bit of a global call as well, and I really want to thank you all for being on the call today. Today's program is supported by an educational donation provided by Amgen, and I really want to thank them for their support. And I'd like to turn your attention for a moment to all the materials that you received from Cancer Care. And those materials is information about our speakers and the topics they'll be covering. And there also is information about all the different collaborating organizations as really a resource for all of you to call and to utilize in addition to the services of Cancer Care. Um, and that's, that they're just there for you, and they're all free. Um, and in addition, there is an evaluation form, and I would ask you to please complete the evaluation form at the end of today's program. Your feedback is really critically important to us in planning future programs, and indeed we're planning lots more programs, uh, obviously, throughout the year and next year, and your feedback really helps us to pick topics that are most relevant to meet your particular needs. So please tell us um, what you thought of the program and also what you would like us to offer going forward. Indeed, the program today is one that it's a topic that many of you have asked us to cover, and so here it is. And so, um, so thank you for that feedback, and we look forward to your feedback on this program as well. Um, now, we have wonderful speakers today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And um, our, our first uh, speaker today is Dr. Generosa Grana. Um, and Dr. Grana is a professor at MD Anderson Cancer Center, head division of hematology oncology, Cooper University Hospital, associate professor of medicine, Cooper Medical School of Rowan University. Uh, and Dr. Grana is going to be addressing an overview of breast cancer, bone loss and bone metastases, screening for bone health and risk factors, prescription medication to promote bone health, as well as the role of calcium supplements, nutrition, and exercise. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Grana. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be here. And just to correct, I'm at MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper in Camden, New Jersey, and very excited to be here. My topic is, again, to talk about the management of bone, both in early-stage breast cancer as well as metastatic disease. And the issues that women are facing are very different when you look at these two scenarios. In early-stage disease, the focus is on maintaining bone health despite the impact of early menopause therapy and despite the impact of drug therapy with agents such as aromatase inhibitors and chemotherapy. But there's also a second focus, and that's gotten a lot of attention in recent years, uh, the concept of preventing or lowering the risk of metastatic disease to bone and other organs. So I'm going to touch base on both of those topics. In metastatic disease, the focus is on preventing the complications of bone metastases, preventing what people call skeletal-related events, which include fractures, pain, high calcium, spinal cord compression, the need for surgery, the need for radiation, et cetera, 
clearly the goal is to improve symptom management, improve survival, control pain, so very different strategies as we look at early versus uh, advanced disease. So let's begin with early stage disease. Again, um, we know that when we focus on that concept of preventing bone loss, we know that women who enter menopause lose bone at significantly higher rates, but the rate of bone loss is significantly higher if a woman is using uh, therapy with aromatase inhibitors, uh, even greater if she has been on ovarian suppression, if people are using drugs such as Zolodex to suppress ovaries and giving them a hormonal agent. And we also know that women sustain a significant amount of bone loss if they go and receive chemotherapy and have chemotherapy-induced uh, uh, menopause. So clearly these are important issues. And bone loss, why is bone loss important? Because bone loss is a predictor of fracture risk. And there is a lot of data that as the amount of bone loss increases, as you go through the normal bone to osteopenia to osteoporosis, which are just levels of bone loss, the risk of fractures increases. And the complications of bone fractures are very significant, both in terms of impact on quality of life and uh, impact on other long-term uh, complications. The impact in young women has to be aggressive focus on bone health. Uh, I talk to all of my patients about exercise, calcium, vitamin D, but the other issue is really assessing bone health early, assessing fracture risk early by using both family history, personal history, as well as imaging. Uh, most of you have heard about DEXA scans as tools that can be used to assess bone strength, but a DEXA scan is one of the pieces that you need to use. The other is looking at family history and other risk factors for bone loss. So the first approach is educating women about prevention of bone loss. The second is assessing bone health. And the third is really taking a very proactive approach to preventing that bone loss and to maintaining bone health. So in the early stage setting, there are several drugs that have been shown to improve bone mineral density in patients with breast cancer. Uh, they include the oral bisphosphonates. Uh, clodronate is used in Europe, not in the United States, but in the United States we have uh, bisphosphonates such as Fosamax, Actinol, Boniva. We have intravenous bisphosphonate uh, reclass, which is a variation of Zomata, and we actually have uh, sub-Q denosumab, uh, known by some of you as Exgeva. I'm not going to go through the studies that were all used to evaluate the impact, but several studies have shown that giving these agents to young healthy women can help prevent bone loss that would be associated uh, with menopause, uh, with the chemotherapy-induced menopause, and with aromatase inhibitor therapy. Uh, we have data that if you give women uh, Zomata with uh, hormonal therapy in the form of letrozole, for example, that you can actually block the amount of bone loss that you would get from the aromatase inhibitor. The same thing with anastrozole. Uh, clearly, these drugs are active in preventing the bone loss that one would normally expect. There was a similar trial giving denosumab one dose of 60 milligrams every six months versus placebo to women that were getting aromatase inhibitors, and that too was shown to cause significant improvement in bone, and the drug is now FDA approved for use with aromatase inhibitors in women uh, who have early stage breast cancer. So 
again, multiple studies have shown that we have drugs that can block this bone loss that we see in women. The key is education of women, and a lot of effort has been put out nationally to uh, educate clinicians and educate patients about the importance. Uh, NCCN actually has a task force that issued a report, and the report really just highlighted the fact that recognition is important, that we need to assess risk by looking at DEXA scans and fracture assessment, that we need to intervene with lifestyle modification, calcium, vitamin D, and that we need to consider some of these other medical therapies uh, based on the woman's risk of bone uh, fractures uh, based on all of the other factors. So clearly, uh, the message to all of our patients should be to be cognizant, to monitor bone mineral density. Uh, DEXA scans should be done at initiation and then at two-year intervals, and if a woman's bone is declining, aggressive management is appropriate. So that's really the focus on bone loss, but what about the focus on the other aspect for early stage breast cancer, which is the concept that maybe we can prevent the development of metastasis uh, and therefore improve outcome uh, survival from using these agents. There have been several studies that have been done looking at the use of the various bisphosphonates some studies with oral agents, some studies with intravenous agents, that have shown uh, the ability to lower risk of recurrence and improve survival. But these studies, by and large, uh, have been small and the results have varied. The original study that looked at a bisphosphonate to uh, decrease uh, recurrence risk was actually the European drug clodronate. And the first study with that compound showed that you can actually improve disease-free survival and overall survival. But two other studies followed. One showed no benefit. One showed a benefit. And finally, the most recent study, which was a study done in the United States by the NSABP that was presented in 2011, really didn't show benefit except in women that were over the age of 50. So again, I think with regards to this, clo this agent clodronate, the jury is still very much out as to how much benefit in terms of prevention of recurrence one gets, and it may be a selective protection uh, maybe in older women only, but again, I think the jury is still out. Other studies have been done. Uh, that looked at the zoledronic acid or zomata that some of you know. Studies uh, made women uh, postmenopausal with uh, an injection, and then half of them went on to tamoxifen, half went on to a, an aromatase inhibitor. Half of this population received zomata, half did not. And in that study, there was a benefit that was seen, and it was seen both in terms of and local recurrence, so that was actually very exciting, and it has led some clinicians to using these drugs in that setting. But a larger study, or a similar a large study uh, called Azure, A-Z-U-R-E, uh, using the same zoledronic acid showed no significant impact on overall survival. There was, again, in that study, though, the concept that if you really focus on older women, women that have been in menopause for a significant amount of time, in that study they looked at women that had been in menopause for more than five years, there really was a significant difference. So, again, I think there is uh, some data suggesting that using the bisphosphonates may give us a benefit in terms of decreasing risk of recurrence, but the true significance is uh, yet to be defined. Uh, I told you about the clodronate study. 
done by the NSABP. Again, the benefit primarily in older women in the subgroup analysis. I think the important message is there have been other studies that have been done, and we are waiting the results of those studies. Uh, there was one study that compared oral to intravenous bisphosphonates, uh, and I think very interesting as we wait the results of that study because that may help us to make decisions in this regard. So what can I say about prevention of recurrence? I would say that as a practicing oncologist, some data suggests that there is an anti-cancer effect from these drugs, uh, but it seems to be primarily in women that are in menopause that have low estrogen levels. I think the jury's still out about the extent of benefit and most clinicians are really not using these drugs in women with normal bone, uh, but really being aggressive in women that are showing the least bit of bone loss. Let's switch then to metastatic disease. Uh, metastatic disease, the goals are very different. Uh, cancer metastasizes to bone and can result in fractures, pain, high calcium, spinal cord compressions, neurologic compromise from those spinal cord compressions, the need for radiation, the need for surgery, the need for uh, immobilization, et cetera. And the key is that we have a variety of tools available to us to deal with those issues. One of them is drug therapy to prevent the issues altogether, and the other is treatment of those issues once they develop. And and I know our next speaker is going to talk much more about this uh, in terms of management. Untreated uh, patients experience a significant number of these uh, events, uh, calcium uh, events, uh, fractures, et cetera, and there are three agents that are on the market that have been shown to be effective in decreasing the rates of those events. Zomeda or zoledronic acid, which is given intravenously over a five to ten uh, minute period of time, denosumab or exgeva, which is given subcutaneously, and pomidronate, which is the oldest of these agents, which is given intravenously over a two hour period of time. Uh, again, different uh, delivery method, different time that a woman is committed to being in the infusion area, uh, but the ASCO and NCCM basically have recommended that there is no strong evidence to recommend one agent over another, that they're all very active uh, compounds, and it really does depend on the patient's preference and, and ability to get drugs. All of them, unfortunately, have a similar complication, which is the risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw, and we can talk about that to a greater extent, uh, but they don't seem to differ very much in terms of that risk. So I think all three agents are important. There was a study that looked at zoledronic acid uh, versus denosumab in patients with metastatic disease. Denosumab appeared to lower risk of uh, fracture uh, by about 18%, which was significant in that trial. It did lower uh, problems with calcium uh, hypercalcemia by the same amount, uh, and some people believe that this may add something to the favorability of this compound versus others. Uh, but again, I think the jury is still out, and uh, I think many people are using these compounds and there are ongoing studies now looking at management uh, of the sort of assessing the risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw and managing the risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw. Uh, so I think much more will happen. So what can I conclude? I can conclude by saying that 
in uh, early stage disease, bone is a major factor that needs to be monitored, uh, that needs to be aggressively managed. Whether the data is compelling enough to use these bone strengthening drugs for prevention of bone loss, yes, absolutely. Whether the data is compelling enough to use it for prevention of metastases, not yet so clear. Uh, in metastatic disease, we have three great agents and really can make an impact on the lives of women. Uh, so uh, we're very fortunate at this point. And I'll stop here. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Grana. Just a wonderful presentation, very informative. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Michaela Higgins. And Dr. Higgins is attending medical oncologist, breast cancer program, Massachusetts General Hospital, Assistant Professor, Harvard Medical School. And uh, Dr. Higgins, Dr. Higgins is going to address controlling pain and discomfort, clinical trials, how research contributes to your treatment options, and communicating with your, with your doctor and healthcare team about quality of life concerns. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be on the call. So I was going to start by talking a little about, bit about some of the pains and discomfort our patients may have. We encourage all of our patients and indeed our clinic staff to consider pain the fifth vital sign. So when you come to visit your doctor, a very important thing is to speak up. Tell us if you're feeling pain, where it is, and open that conversation with your doctor. Um, in general, among our patients, the pains can be related either to treatment itself, as often in the case of the hormone-blocking tablets that we use, such as the aromatase inhibitors, those are letrozole or Femara, anastrozole or Arimidex, Eximestane or Aromacin, those tablets can cause bony aches and pains commonly. Now, it's not the same as arthritis. They don't actually cause any structural bone um, abnormalities. However, estrogen lubricates our joints, and in blocking estrogen so very completely, they can exacerbate aches and dryness in the joints a lot of my patients describe it as a stiffness, often worse in the morning, and classically it's the small joints of the hands and feet. But not uncommonly if you have arthritis, which is very common, wear and tear and degenerative joint disease in other areas, being on these tablets may exacerbate that bony pain. So that occurs, I would say, approximately about one-third of the time in patients taking these tablets. So it's very important to discuss with your doctor because these are tablets that we want you to continue to take for several years, so we really need to work through any issues you may have with being on them. A lot of the time, it's very mild and no treatment is necessary. For other patients, we always start with simple things like acetaminophen or paracetamol, and occasionally we use anti-inflammatory tablets like ibuprofen, such as somebody would use for other arthritic or musculoskeletal pains. The other trick we can try, if that doesn't work, is switching among the tablets. So even though all of these agents in the aromatase inhibitor class, that's the letrozole, anastrozole, or exemestane, they all have this potential side effect. Sometimes when you switch a patient from one tablet to the other, it improves their symptoms. And I can't quite explain that, but it happens about a third of the time, so it's always worth a go. If they're still finding the, the joint pains really troublesome or problematic, the other thing to consider is use of the slightly older drug, but still a great drug, tamoxifen, which we also use for premenopausal women. Although it can cause some joint pains, it's much, much rarer that it does so. And I've um, several patients who haven't been able to tolerate the aromatase inhibitors, but have actually done well on tamoxifen. So that's something to discuss the pros and cons with your doctor. Um, about. The other things to talk about today are maybe bone pains that may be related to cancer that has spread to the bones. 
unfortunately, this is a place where breast cancer likes to go. Three quarters of the time when breast cancer metastasizes, the bones are the first place it goes to. That doesn't mean that every ache and pain a breast cancer survivor gets is likely to be um, breast cancer in the bones that has metastasized. We will all get bones, bone aches and pains and arthritis is very common as we age. When we listen to our patients, we're listening for pains that have changed in character. They're new. It's out of the ordinary. It's getting worse over time. It's requiring pain medication, maybe more pain medication over time, and it's different to a pain you've had before. Those are the sort of pains that I'm, I'm listening for and might prompt me to do an x-ray or a different type of scan. There are many ways to care for and control pain from um, breast cancer that is metastasized to the bones. And I want to stress to everybody that in this day and age, we have great treatments available and nobody should be afraid of pain from breast cancer in the bones. We really should be able to control it for our patients. And there are several different approaches and sometimes we use a combination of approaches to do that. One of the things we can do, of course, is use painkillers. We always start with the lowest, safest dose of medicine needed. So you start with something like acetaminophen or paracetamol. The next step up would be to use anti-inflammatory medicines, the arthritis-type medicines, ibuprofen, Aleve, naproxen. And we also make use of steroids, such as dexamethasone, in this setting. We try not to use them for too long, but they're very powerful anti-inflammatory medicines. And if there's pain in the bones around the spine that's tweaking on the nerves as they come out from the spine, the steroids can be very useful in dampening down irritation of the nerves in those areas. So we often use those when the breast cancer has affected the bones around the spine. Um, where the, the nerves have been irritated, you can have a different type of nerve pain, which may have a tingling or transient sharp element to it. It may not be there all the time. It may come and go. There also are different classes of medicine that have been quite good for that sort of pain. Another thing worth talking to your doctor about or indeed seeking advice from a palliative medicine consultant, but those are medicines such as gabapentin or tricyclic antidepressants. They may have a role for that very peculiar type of nerve pain. Then, of course, there are the stronger medicines, the opioid medicines. Um, those classes of medicine, um, we always start at the lowest necessary doses. We start with something like tramadol, which is not a full opioid, and then you can move up to the um, stronger painkillers such as oxycodone or morphine. Um, when you are being prescribed these by your oncologist, they are being given in an absolutely safe manner. There's no danger of you becoming addicted to them whatsoever, um, and we always prescribe them appropriately. And we often recognize that pain can wax and wane. So it's a common practice to use both a long-acting agent, something to give you some background control over pain, and then also have available to you a tablet or a lozenge that has a quicker onset. So for example, if you have pain when you try to take a bath or on movement or trying to go to a walk, um, it can be helpful to have a long-acting background pain controller that you take morning and night no matter what, and then for short-acting pain relief, there's also tablets or lozenges you can take during the day. And those painkillers come in lots of different forms, both tablets, patches, lozenges, intravenously. So there's very often a formulation that works um, for an individual person to talk about. The second thing I wanted to touch on today is clinical trials and how that may be relevant to your treatment options. Clinical trials, very broadly speaking, come in two different flavors. So there are clinical trials that are what we call interventional. So those are trials where 
we are offering you a different medicine or an active treatment for your breast cancer. Then the second type of study that we do where we don't really um, do anything invasive to you are quality of life studies, studies maybe assessing fatigue or assessing lymphedema in our breast cancer patients. Equally very important studies that allow us to learn about breast cancer and how maybe treatments affect um, breast cancer patients. Interventional trials um, come in what are called phases, phase one, two, and three. And I'm going to briefly outline them to you because those are differing types of studies and clinical investigations. So a phase one study in general is the first time a drug has been used in a cancer patient or perhaps in any patients at all. And the primary goal of those studies is to learn how the drug can be given safely and what dose to give it at. In general, those studies involve just a small number of patients, and they tend to be quite visit intensive. So these are drugs at the very earliest stage of development. We haven't yet learned completely how they are metabolized by the body and how they can affect the body. So there's quite a few blood tests and frequent visits to the hospital. Um, but it can be an early way to get access to a, a, a drug that looks promising and maybe has some preclinical or animal data to support its use. That's a phase one study. If a drug looks good in a phase one study, the company will be interested in taking it on to what's called a phase two study, which is a classic efficacy study. That's where we know how to give it. We've learned how to safely give the drug, but now we want to see does it work. So that can be either a single arm study where everybody on the trial gets that drug to see how many patients get a response or how long it controls their disease for. Sometimes we're now doing what's called a randomized phase two trial where half of the group get the study drug and half might get what is the current standard therapy with the study drug and you compare which of the two groups does better. The next, <coughs> excuse me, the next type of trial is a phase three trial. So this is a big, large study um, required by our FDA. So that's our registration authority. Before a drug can be put on the shelves of your pharmacy or a doctor can write a prescription for it, it has to go through a large phase three study. And that is a head-to-head, -head, a large number of patients, half of the group getting what is current standard of care and half of the group getting standard of care and this new agent or the new agent by itself. It's a head-to-head -head study, and a phase three study is a large one. It takes a considerable amount of time, but that's usually the path to getting the drug registered if it seems promising. Clinical trials um, are, are available to, to many patients, and a lot of the time it comes down to practical considerations, such as are you near a center to travel to for taking part in a study? Does the schedule of visitations suit you? Are you going to be able to get rides to come in? And remember, it doesn't have to be a one or other. Quite often, we have patients who at some time may have standard therapy. They may come to us and take part in a clinical trial, then return and have standard therapy for another period of time. I would encourage patients to consider that each time you get to a, a treatment decision point, if there's a, a fork in the road, the current therapy you're on perhaps isn't working and your doctor is considering a change in treatment, that's when you should consider a clinical trial. Each time there's a decision point, consider would a clinical trial be helpful or a novel thing for you. Clinical trial enrollment is entirely voluntary, so if you hear about a trial and you're interested and eligible, you are welcome to be on the study, but you must understand that you're the boss. If it's not suiting you or the doctor has any concerns it's not helping, you can always come off the study at a moment's notice. You're the boss. And 
many patients like the appeal of contributing to breast cancer research. It's a way that you can be part of the next wave of breast cancer treatment, um, contributing to our knowledge about breast cancer and how to treat it. Um, the other thing to bear in mind is that eligibility for clinical trials varies from study to study, and that's something that you won't be able to 100% look at in advance. A good starting point is to go to the www.clinicaltrials.gov website. They list um, many of the trials run in um, both North America and Europe there, and you can look at skimpy eligibility details, but really the study group are going to have to check that you're suitable. They may have to check some blood work or EKG. All of the studies have different safety parameters and that would need to be checked before you take part. The final thing I wanted to talk about today is quality of life issues, and my take-home message here is speak up. We are probably not as good as we should be about asking you about quality of life, the things that are important to you. That may be sexual issues, that may be pain, your mood, anxiety, sleep, exercise. We are learning as a community to be better about asking about them, and we would like you to speak up and help us get better at it. Again, I wanted to touch on some of the symptoms in that regard that our medicines may interact or cause. So those aromatase inhibitors and tamoxifen, as many of you know, can mimic symptoms of the menopause. And with that may come reduced libido, vaginal irritation or dryness, weight gain among some of our patients, and of course, hot flashes, hot flashes, hot flashes. So to talk about each one of those just a little bit, um, Hot flashes are as Mother Nature intended. Unfortunately, it's your body appreciating you missing estrogen. They're very variable for person to person, usually most dramatic for the first months or years. Eventually, they do improve, um, but they can be quite troublesome. And the point at which I certainly, a lot of my patients wear layers, they sleep with a fan. Um, but where I really discuss medications with them is if it's interrupting sleep, if it's affecting how you get your work done during the day and what you're able to do the following day, that's when you need to consider some medication perhaps for your hot flashes. So the first very simple thing to try is fish oil available in any drugstore that helps some people with their hot flashes. There are two classes of medicines which have also proven of benefit for hot flashes. I should say that's two classes of medicines excepting um, hormones. Of course, if we were to give you back estrogen, that makes those symptoms go away overnight. But we want to avoid anything containing estrogen because that may stimulate a hormone receptor positive breast cancer. So that's why you're on the hormone blocking therapies. But the two other classes of medicines that may be of help to some patients are some anti-seizure medicines and some antidepressant medicines. We have discovered that when used, sometimes in very low doses, those medicines can relieve the intensity of hot flashes. They're not magic. They don't take them away completely but they certainly seem to take the edge off, and those are worth a try for many of our patients. For the joint aches and pains, um, the other simple thing to try over the counter is actually glucosamine or chondroitin sulfate. That can be very helpful in just easing up some of that achiness in the joints. For vaginal irritation or dryness, there are a few options, but certainly you should be open-minded about lots of lubricants, well worth a try and can give relief to some of our patients, and have a chat to your doctor about low-dose vaginal estrogens. It's absolutely true that we avoid systemic estrogens, estrogens that go throughout the body, but very low-dose vaginal estrogens that just 
um, stay within the vaginal vault and aren't vault and aren't absorbed through the body can give great relief. And there's, you know, uh, some data that shows that they're probably safe among breast cancer survivors and patients. And I do use those tablets. Um, vaginal preparations of low-dose estrogen comfortably. I think um, the risk of estrogen being absorbed is absolutely minimal and they can give great relief for that troublesome symptom. Um, for some of our patients, support groups work, communication classes, and sometimes just sitting down to speak with a counselor about being a breast cancer survivor or the effects the treatments are having on your quality of life can be really helpful. Um, as part of that, I would recommend that everybody try and keep as healthy a weight as possible, and get out and do some exercise. Walking is great for your bones, but clearly also great for your heart and lungs. And we've got to remember the rest of you, not just your breasts. So for our patients, we certainly recommend that you get out and about. I think it's good for both body and soul to stimulate yourself to go out for a walk, perhaps with a friend. It can lift your mood. It can help with your sleep. Um, walking really is a great, very simple approach. If you can find the time to walk at least for 30 smart minutes three times a week, it's a great starting point. I think I'll leave it at that for now and look forward to your questions. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Higgins. And that's a wonderful point of saying uh, 30 smart minutes uh, three times a week, that sounds wonderful, and it, it kind of gives a different extra kind of um, oomph to it. So thank you. And I, I know there will be lots of questions for you as well, so thank you. And, and now we do have time for questions, and I'm going to ask uh, Kate to bring all of our speakers on board now, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get to your question, then we're going to ask you to go ahead and call Cancer Care, the 800 number, 1-800-813-HOPE where our oncology social workers are here to answer your questions and try to help you. And you also have all of the other organizations as well to call. Um, so we're going to start with our first question. Um, and I'm going to first of all ask Ashley um, if uh, Kate would explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. And our first question comes from the line of Marcia R., your line is open. Yes, the question that I have is, I take additional calcium and vitamin D3 because of breast cancer, and I am on uh, a mere aromatase inhibitor. Now, I'm coming up to the end of my five-year period of taking the aromatase inhibitor, and I'm wondering, is it wise to still continue with extra calcium and vitamin D3? Excellent question. Um, and I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Groner if you would uh, please address that question. I think the important and reassuring thing is that once you go off of the aromatase inhibitor, uh, there is actually improvement in bone mineral density that's been shown in some of the previous studies. Um, I do tell women to continue to take calcium because menopause is a period where bone is a, pri a priority. Uh, take uh, some vitamin D, but your physician should be monitoring your vitamin D, and if you're getting adequate amounts, you may not need to supplement. If you're getting adequate amounts of calcium with yogurt, uh, milk, uh, juice, and others, again, you may be able to, to limit it, but about 1,500 milligrams a day plus D is usually the recommended dose. It's going to be interesting to see the results. There's a study that's looking at aromatase inhibitors for 10 years versus 5. We don't have results, but I think one of the important things from that study will be to see what the impact is on bone of being on these drugs for 10 years. So I am tending to stop my patients at 5 years uh, with the exception of some very high-risk patients, but uh, it'll be interesting to see results. Excellent. Thank you. 
And um, our next question comes from our online participants. Um, can you show the names of the medications mentioned that help prevent bone loss with hormone therapy? Dr. Grana, could you just repeat So the there are oral bisphosphonates. Uh, in Europe, there's a drug called clodronate. In the United States, there is Fosamax, which is the oldest, uh, Boniva, uh, Actinol, and they have other trade names. Um, and then there is the intravenous Zomata or Zoledronic acid. And the sub-Q, uh, which for uh, prevention of bone loss goes under the trade name of Prolia, uh, when it's used to treat metastatic disease, it goes under the name of Exgeva. So these are all the compounds that are at play. Okay, excellent. And um, uh, our next question, um, uh, Stephanie? Our next question comes from the line of Rosemary J. Your line is open. Yes, I'm on anastrozole and Zometa, and I would like to know what the controversy is between taking one milligram of anastrozole uh, or two milligrams of anastrozole. I would like to take uh, one milligram in the morning say at 8 o'clock, one uh, at night at 8 p.m. And uh, my nurse that I have helping me, she said there's a controversy. I'd just like to know what the controversy is. Thank you very much for your question, um, Rosemary. And I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Agrana to address that question in a general way, and then we'll have you go first go back to your healthcare team. But uh, Dr. Agrana, if you could um, address this. Well, question. I guess I must say that I'm I have not used anastrozole in anything but the one milligram a day dose. That's what the studies were done with this compound, and I'm interested if Dr. Higgins is using it as a twice-a-day dose or two-milligram dose. I have only ever used it as a one-milligram dose. I'm the same as you. I've only ever used one milligram, and that's, I believe, the FDA label. I've never heard of it twice-a-day or two-milligram dosing before. Yeah. So we so I don't think there's a controversy. I'm not aware of any controversy. That's just what the FDA has uh, given, and that's how the studies have been done. So we would recommend, Rosemary, that you bring back to your treating team what you've learned today and perhaps have a discussion with them about, about, your, you know, about your particular situation and your care. That's important. Um, that's um, an excellent question that you've asked, and um, we hope this has been helpful to you. Um, okay. And our next question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. And we have a question actually from one of our online participants. Um, and the question is, um, if I want to exercise but my energy levels are always low and I feel sluggish, what can I do to improve this? Dr. Higgins, can you address that question? So this is a common complaint and uh, among both breast cancer patients and the world at large. So you're not alone is the first thing. All of us probably should take more exercise than we do. But um, start with the basics. Sometimes there's actually a medical reason for not having energy. And I think that's the first thing to check with your doctor. You'd like to exercise. Have a look to make sure that you're not anemic, that your red cells aren't low, and that your thyroid function is normal. Um, and that sometimes how we're feeling our, our mood and depression can actually link to energy levels. So those are the first things to get squared away. After that, then the trick is really just to sort of um, take it in a stepwise manner. So start with something simple like walking. If you can only do a block today, that's okay. Um, but try and walk to the block 
this morning and maybe try again this afternoon after a rest. Try and take, you know, make push it out to two blocks tomorrow and very gradually build it up. Many of our patients find that although they are tired when they start out, after a few weeks of a new exercise regimen, it actually improves their energy levels and their sleeping. So it's not a magic fix. There isn't anything quick I can magic wand for you. But once you've checked that there isn't a medical reason for feeling sluggish, then I think you're just going to need to start small and build on it. And um, another question from one of our um, online uh, participants, uh, from Kathy. How does use of reclast annually compare to use of Zometa with aromatase inhibitors? Uh, Dr. Grana, do you want to address that? Uh, reclast and Zometa are the same compound in different amount. So Zometa is 4 milligrams, and, and it's zoledronic acid, 4 milligrams. Reclast is zoledronic acid, 5 milligrams. When treating osteoporosis, uh, the approved dose is the yearly dose of zoledronic acid at 5 milligrams. In the studies that have been done looking at prevention of bone loss, the zoledronic acid has been the 4 milligram dose, and several of the studies have used a variety of schedules. For example, uh, in the Azure trial, patients received it monthly for six months, then every three months for about two and a half years, and then every six months for about two and a half years. So, again, it's hard to compare the two because they were different endpoints, and it depends on what you're using it for. So if you're using it for a prevention of bone loss, then I tend to use the uh, 4 milligram uh, Zometa dose, uh, and it's your choice how to use it every three or every six months. And if I use it for true osteoporosis that has been refractory, I would do the reclass though, once a year. Thank you very much. And our next question, Stephanie? Our next question comes from the line of Regina R. Your line is open. Hi, uh, yes, hi. I have a question. Um, I have lupus also, and I've been on prednisone like over oh, 16 years. And I know before that with cancer and everything, they've been checking for bone loss, but they put me on like 50,000 UNT of vitamin D. And I also want to know, too, my oncologist was also talking about going on tamoxifen, and I have already have really bad um, hot flashes and uh, excruciating joint pain. Will the tamoxifen make that worse, or will that even help with that problem? That's an excellent question, and I'm going to ask Dr. Higgins to address that question. Um, so I'm sorry to hear what a difficult time of it you've been having. So there's sort of a, a few issues there. I'm not a lupus expert. I'll start by saying that. But I do recognize that having been on prednisone or indeed any steroid for chronic therapy for years, you are at risk of accelerated bone loss or osteopenia and osteoporosis. So you um, are someone whose vitamin D and calcium absolutely need to be optimized and you probably also could benefit from a bone strengthener. So I think the vitamin D you're on sounds very reasonable, um, and you should have your bone density checked with a DEXA study, um, like Dr. Grana was mentioning. Um, as for tamoxifen, 
this is a conversation you'll have to continue with, with your own doctor, but I, I'm presuming that they're recommending tamoxifen to you for treatment of your breast cancer. And for that, it certainly is a very effective therapy, and you have to weigh up the pros and cons. So it is true that it may exacerbate hot flashes. I will say, among my patients who are starting off with dreadful hot flashes, some of them say, listen, taking a tablet doesn't make any difference because I had such bad hot flashes anyway. So I certainly wouldn't, I, I would give it a go and see how you feel on it. it if, if you already have hot flashes, you may not even notice a difference. If it makes them worse, then you're going to have to consider some of these other things like fish oil or maybe adding in a different medicine like gabapentin or venlafaxine to see if that can help with your hot flash tolerance. Um, but in general, for um, breast cancer, the benefits of trying to be on some sort of hormone blocking therapy outweigh those side effects, and it's worth at least trying the medicine and then seeing if you can work through the side effects. From a bone aches point of view, tamoxifen, in my experience, is quite good to your bones and rarely um, irritates the bones in the same way the aromatase inhibitors can, so tamoxifen is a good choice for you from a bone ache point of view. Okay, excellent. Thank you. And our next question, Stephanie? Our next question comes from the line of Carrie Q. Your line is open. Hello. I, uh, I am Mrs. Ryo talking to I'm stopping to take my XMS thing because... Carrie, I'm we're having a little trouble hearing you. Can you possibly, uh, maybe on a speakerphone or a little further away from the phone? Uh, yes. We're here in Ithaca. Oh. We have a support group that Excellent. we have you in a group of, uh, we have about 20, 20 women that join us every week. Uh, uh, the Arimidex uh, is a, a large issue, and it is largely uh, joint pain, and... Uh, that, that affects people. The, the, there are some folks that, that uh, are struggling with that and find themselves having used some of the, the pain relief that, that you've suggested, but continue to have, have problems and have chosen with, with their doctors, but their doctors not happily uh, going along with them, uh, not taking the Arimidex any, any further. Would, if, if that were the situation, would you recommend that they uh, then be on, on tamoxifen? That's an excellent question. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, thank you for your group being there as well, and uh, lovely to hear all of you there. Um, Dr. Grana, would you begin by addressing this question? It's a well, I think what the individuals are experiencing is common. So the aromatase inhibitors, uh, as Dr. Higgins said, are well known to cause this. And so at the end of the day, there needs to be an attempt to try all of the strategies available, a switch from and if they don't work. So again, um, I use uh, non-steroidals, I use glucosamine, chondroitin sulfate, I sometimes actually even refer patients for acupuncture, which can be helpful, uh, although sometimes costly and not always covered by insurance. Uh, then I say, okay, switch to another aromatase inhibitor. Aromacin can help when you've been on Arimidex, but at the end of the day, I try to move these patients to tamoxifen because tamoxifen, as Dr. Higgins said, can be much easier on the joint. If all else fails, it becomes an issue of having a discussion with the woman about what is the risk of recurrence of the cancer versus the toxicity that she's experiencing. And if ultimately her quality of life is terrible, there has to be that give and take. Uh, but again, I think there are many things to try before you give up. There's an interesting study uh, going on across the country giving women who have significant uh, 
aromatase inhibitor arthritic symptoms, uh, uh, a placebo or a testosterone pellet in, implanted to see, again, if uh, some alternate uh, hormonal manipulations may be helpful in dealing with this. So I don't know that we have a great handle on what causes these pains and also how to ameliorate them. Thank you. Dr. Higgins, do you want to add anything? I feel like it's a very no, I really question. would second that. You know, um, we, our focus is on the breast cancer, and yes, from a breast cancer point of view, it's best to stay on some sort of hormone-blocking therapy, but we have to consider the whole person and your quality of life. So it's an ongoing conversation. My only advice would be don't give up straight away. Try the other measures to see if you can work through staying on something that works for you, either adding in a medicine or switching the medicines and then if you really can't tolerate any of them, it's, it's a conversation regarding the pros and cons and what is a comfortable decision for an individual. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you very much. And thank you for raising that question um, and for all of you being in that support group as well. And um, our next question, uh, Stephanie. Our next question comes from the line of Joanne V. Your line is open. Joanne, okay. your line might be muted. Hello. Hello. Hi, Joanne. Hi. I have a question, and maybe I hooked on a little later. Um, maybe it was covered. Um, how often do you, you believe that the bone density test, if you've been on an AI um, medicine, I'm on the high risk for the over five years, so how often do you advise for a bone density test? Excellent question. Um, Dr. Grana, do you want to? Uh, the recommendations are to do the bone density every two years, um, and unfortunately, even if you wanted to do it more often than every two years, that tends to be what insurance covers. They, uh, as far as I'm aware, are not covering bone densities any more than at two-year intervals. Okay. Thank you. Okay. And um, we have um, a question from one of our online participants. Um, and that is, um, what nutritional tips can you offer uh, to people living with breast cancer to maintain healthy, strong bones? Uh, Dr. Higgins, do you want to address that? Well, it, the most important time actually for eating your cheese and dairy and having a good calcium input as a female was actually in your late teens and adolescence when you were in your 20s. Those are the times you actually laid down the groundwork on your bones. So what I usually tell patients is that after the menopause, it is natural um, to lose bone density. That's how we manifest. That's one of the ways we manifest missing estrogen. Um, and it is a time in our lives when we all postmenopausal women will need additional calcium and potentially vitamin D, as Dr. Grana has outlined. So in general, most people will need repletion. As regarding general nutrition, I remind my patients that actually more breast cancer survivors succumb to heart disease, heart attacks and strokes than to breast cancer. So it's very important to remember all the other stuff like having your cholesterol checked, a fasting cholesterol with your primary care doctor once a year and really trying to optimize that. So having a balanced diet, plenty of fruit and vegetables. I, I'm, I'm a fan of moderation. So I, I say all things in moderation. If my patients enjoy an occasional glass of wine, I think that's important for their quality of life and I support that in moderation. 
population, trying to maintain a healthy weight is important. So for those that are already slim, there is no advantage to losing further weight, but we do know that patients who are obese are, have slightly poorer outcomes in, among breast cancer patients. So if you can exercise to maintain a healthy weight, that's important, and a balanced, regular diet um, with potentially extra calcium and vitamin D is all you need. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay, our next question, please, Stephanie. Our next question comes from the line of Manly W. Your line is open. Hi, yes. My name's Angela Wu, Manny Angela Wu. So I have a breast cancer and uh, also start from last year, June, and uh, become to the bone metastasis to my spinal cord. So also I have uh, arthritis, the bone arthritis. Sometimes I don't know the pains from the uh, arthritis or from the bone metastasis. Sometimes sore and pain, sometimes, you know, feel the sharp pain, so I don't know what is the difference, the pain from these two parts of the disease. Okay, thank you. That's an excellent question. I, I'm going to ask um, if, uh, Dr. Um, Groner if you could address that um, in terms of that, uh, sometimes it's hard for people to distinguish where the, what yeah. causes the pain. I think that is a difficult challenge. Um, oftentimes try to get a sense, obviously the arthritis was there before the metastatic disease was there, so is there anything that is new and different in the pattern of pain right now? I think it's important to sit down with your physician, with your uh, oncologist to try to get a handle on what is pain related uh, to metastasis versus arthritis, even though both can be treated with non-steroidals and narcotics, the piece that is related to your bone metastasis uh, may be approached with other ways. There can be focused radiation. There is injectable uh, radioactive therapy, a, a drug called Quadramet that's on the market. So again, if you can tease out, if you, you and your clinician can tease out how much of your pain is due to the disease, uh, then the interventions may be a little bit different. But I will acknowledge that it can be difficult. Thank you. And we have a question from one of our online participants, Steve. What treatments have you seen that have been effective with early-stage necrotic jaw, and what do you recommend to patients to protect bones after necrotic jaw comes into play? I'm going to ask both Dr. Higgins and Dr. Agrana to address this question. It's a Ooh, I think it's very. A, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no. <laughs> if you have a cure for ONJ, please. Speak no, up. I wish. Uh, I think one of the things is really uh, prevention and, and early recognition. So. We don't have a good handle. It's seen more common in women with metastatic disease who are on these drugs every month, um, and that's how these drugs were FDA approved. Um, the key is making sure the teeth are healthy before starting and making sure you continue to have dental checkups uh, if intervention is needed. It seems to osteonecrosis of the jaw seems to be related to having a, teeth, a tooth extracted or having uh, trauma to the mouth. So again, minimizing that. I really urge my patients that if anything, if they go to the dentist and anything needs to be done, I need to know first. And then we tend to stop the bisphosphonate if an extraction needs to be done, but the reality is that these are very long-lived drugs uh, bound to the matrix and of the bone, and there's no good data that once uh, the event has happened that stopping the drug will fix it. 
aggressive dental management if an extraction is needed, so aggressive care, good antibiotic coverage. People have used hyperbaric oxygen for some of these. They can be very, very difficult to manage. Thank you. And Dr. Higgins, did you want to add? I really have nothing extra. Okay. I agree. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Very helpful. So I hope this is helpful to you, Steve, and, um, and that you work with your healthcare team on this. Um, and there's one other question. It's the question about what type of calcium to take, calcium carbonate or calcium citrate. Um, Dr. Grana? I honestly don't know. Uh, I, I think endocrinologists may give us an idea of which is better, but I honestly can't say that I am uh, aware of any data of one versus another. Agree. Okay. All right. Well, I, we, we actually took all the questions that people had. This is amazing. I know that there may be questions several that people may have, of course, after the call concludes. We, I want to thank our speakers. You've just been extraordinary, quite, quite a, covering a, a broad, broad range of topics and issues. I want to thank all of you who have asked such really great questions, both on the telephone and online, and those of you who have been listening as well. And we do know that after a program, people may have other questions, so we want you to know that uh, you can always call Cancer Care. Um, our staff, we have a staff of 35 oncology social workers, and they're here to answer your questions um, on our call line, um, actually our HOPE line, and our number is 1-800-813-HOPE. And our, our staff offer a range of services. So before we conclude the call, I want to update you on all the services we offer so that you can really take advantage of them. They're free. Um, and we have uh, a social worker who's just there to talk to you about your concerns and questions to offer practical and financial assistance as well. We also do run support groups on the telephone and online and face-to-face -face as well. Um, in our kind of regional area. And then we also do offer, um, of course, these workshops. We have lots of materials and publications that we can make available to you as well. And, of course, we have a very robust website that has lots of information on it as well. But most importantly, before we conclude our program today, I don't want anyone to think that you are alone in coping with breast cancer, in coping with any type of cancer. I want you to know that you're now part of this community of cancer care and all our organizations that we have mentioned as collaborating organizations. And I want you to feel that you have lots of access to help and support, um, that you you may at times feel that you're alone, but you actually, um, by participating in some of our activities, may feel that you now have a connection that can help you with some of your questions and concerns. So as we conclude today, I want to remind all of you to take advantage of our services, call our staff here. Um, we're here to help you. And I want to wish you all a very fine day, and thank you all for participating today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may disconnect. Have a wonderful day.